Hello, welcome back to another episode of Hear Her Sports, where every other week I share a conversation I've had with an absolutely amazing female athlete or woman in sport. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. Thank you for being here, for listening to the show, and for letting other folks know about the guests you meet on each episode. Hear Her Sports is enjoying our annual late summer break, and while we are away, there will be other female athlete podcasts in the feed. First up is one of my longtime favorites, Women's Running Stories, hosted by my friend and colleague, Cherie Turner. Regular episodes feature one woman's story focused around a topic central to her running story. Activism, the transformational impact of running, aging, menopause, and menstruation, community building, red ass, pregnancy, and the mental game. Whatever the topic, Women's Running Stories explores the intersection of running and life, which I love because that's the beauty of sport. It's not separate from life. It is integral to everything else we do and everything else that's happening in the world. So it's always great to hear how other female athletes are making their way. I also love that because Women's Running Stories focuses on running, it is able to explore deeply all the different ways to be a runner. And another bonus is that Cherie is passionate about increasing quality media coverage of women's sports and female athletes. Cherie has been on Hear Her Sports in episode 131 to tell her own story of running Comrades Marathon, which really is an ultra marathon. Cherie and I also joined up to talk to Jay Grunke of The Balanced Runner in episode 143 to find out more about the Feldenkrais Method. I'm going to let Cherie take over so she can introduce her guest and get on with her show. Oh, but before we do that, you can find out more about women's running stories and take a look yourself at all the different kinds of runners Cherie has had on her show by going to womensrunningstories.com. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. In a way, I feel like I haven't really told my AT Appalachian Trail story. For me, it was this it represents a pretty significant part of my life in terms of just like a, a lot. There's kind of like before the AT and after the AT. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I think I'm still it, it was such a big thing that I, I think it's still processing and, and probably because it's not just the trail and the adventure itself, but so much of kind of like the events leading up to it. And then all the places it's taken me since, or like, to, you know, maybe like other paths that have come from it. So it was just kind of like this catalyst, like for a lot of change. Women's running, running, running. Running Hi, my name is Liz Durstein. I am a runner, hiker, writer, musician. Yes, in this episode, you're going to hear from Liz Durstein about her experiences on the Appalachian Trail. But before we hear more from Liz, I want to welcome you to Women's Running Stories. We are the podcast that features runners' stories as told by the runners themselves. My name is Sheree Louise Turner. I am your host and producer. And if you're new here, welcome and thank you for joining us. I really hope you enjoy this story. It is a great one. And if you are returning, welcome back. I'm so happy that you've returned. And I want to let you know that this podcast is a proud member of the Evergreen Network of Podcasts. Another podcast in the network that I know you will love is called Hear Her Sports. It is hosted and produced by my friend and great interviewer, Elizabeth Emery. Every other Thursday, Elizabeth delivers engaging, informative conversations with women who are bettering the sports world for us all. She has a wide variety of guests. She features a lot of athletes from so many different sports, open water swimming, cross-country skiing, cycling, running. I mean, the list goes on. And she brings in women who work in the sports space, journalists, academics, clothing manufacturers, nutritionists, again, just a really wide variety of people. But the one thing all of these episodes have in common 
is that Elizabeth brings you into the world of the person she's talking to, and she and her guests really get into the reasons why her guest is so passionate about their pursuits, as well as the details of what it takes to do what they do so well. For me, I always find useful takeaways that I can apply to my own athletic pursuits as well as life in general. So yeah, go ahead and check out Hear Her Sports. Of course, I will provide all of the pertinent links to Hear Her Sports in the show notes. Now on to Liz's story. We're focusing on Liz's experience around the Appalachian Trail, also known as the AT. We recorded this story back in the fall of 2022 in Boston, where Liz currently resides. Previous to her AT adventures, she was living in Portland, Oregon. Liz hiked the AT starting on July 7th, 2020, so she's had some time to reflect on her experiences, and she's going to get into a lot of that in this story. A few things to know about the AT. The specific distance of the trail changes ever so slightly from year to year, just depending on how it is routed. The year that Liz did it, it measured 2,193 miles. The one thing that doesn't change about the AT is that one end is at Springer Mountain in Georgia, and the other end is at Katahdin in Maine. A couple things mentioned in the story that I want to explain up front. Liz mentions FKTs, or fastest known times. These are records that are kept about the fastest known times that people have taken to complete well-known trails, and often they're quite long. And of course, the AT is one of them. There are FKTs kept in a number of different categories. There are northbound and southbound records. There are men's and women's records. And there are records for people who are supported or unsupported. Supported simply means that you have a crew, somebody, or many people who help you along the way. Unsupported, in essence, means that you're going solo. In Liz's case, she hiked northbound starting in Georgia and ending in Maine. And she was supported. Another little detail to know about this trail culture is that many hikers take on a trail name. In some cases, that name is given to them by someone else, and in other cases, they choose their own name, as is what happened with Liz. My trail name is Mercury. I chose it, and it was inspired by music, which ties in just being a musician, but uh, there's a song by uh, this composer, Gustav Holst, called Mercury, and it's part of this orchestral suite called The Planets. I hadn't, like, I kind of knew of The Planets, but it was actually specifically before a prep hike that I was about to go do on the Appalachian Trail that my support crew, uh, he was going to support me on this prep hike too, and uh, he had this, like, minivan as the support vehicle with the CD player, so I was like, oh, I should get some music for this, so I went to the local like record CD store in Portland and was just kind of perusing old CDs and found the planets and thought, oh, that sounds cool. Then I popped it in the CD player in my car and just immediately fell in love with the song Mercury. It's just like a very sprightly, upbeat sounding song. like oh this is how I feel when I'm on the trails so like the yeah the the music initially was like oh this is so cool Mercury I like that name and and then like the more I I I just kind of you know googled and dove into it like Mercury it's also the name of the Roman deity the winged wing-footed messenger and I was like oh that's kind of cool like I like the sound of being a messenger and then and then also Mercury the planet is the closest planet to the sun and it's the smallest and uh, fastest, you know, I think it takes something like 88 days to go around the sun. So I thought that was also cool. I was like, well, I'm trying to hike fast and Mercury is fast. So (laughs) I just kind of found all these little neat connections. So it seemed pretty fitting. Someone else who's important to know about before we get going here is Liz's support crew. My support crew, it was a one-person support crew. For the most part, I had other people, but, like, come in and out. But 
uh, was Warren Doyle, a uh, trail name Jupiter. And he doesn't actually have a trail name that was uh, like in general, but that was his trail name for the purpose of my hike. We were Mercury and Jupiter on the hike. So Now let's get to it. Let's get on to Liz Durstein's Appalachian Trail story, which has its roots many years back in her childhood. I learned about the trail as a kid, like on a camping trip, like it was like a youth expedition, like, you know, like you have like maybe eight kids and two counselors and go off and hike in the woods for a few days. And I like really fell in love with that and did it a couple more summers after that. Like my parents like sent me off to this neat expedition camp thing. And I, A, like really enjoyed just being out there on the trails. Like I would come back from these trips and just, you know, my parents would pick me up and I'd be in the backseat, basically like not like yelling at them, but I would remember like, oh my, wow, I'm talking really loud. I think I'm just really excited, but like telling them about all my experiences out, you know, on the trail. And so, so, I mean, it was something that at least like the being outdoors, walking all day, kind of like having that sense of accomplishment from getting from point A to point B. And also I remember it was kind of like the first realization, like, oh, I don't, I don't need as many things as I thought I did. Like I, you know, we slept either in our little tents or on the little lean-tos on the trail. And, and I remember after like one particular trip that I did in West Virginia, you know, my parents came and picked me up and then we went and stayed at a family friend's house in Virginia. And I don't know, I just remember thinking like, I don't need a bed. I don't need this room. (laughs) Like, I don't, like, this is silly. These early experiences planted a spark of interest. It was one that Liz felt compelled to return to several years later. Pre-AT, I I lived in Portland. I moved there in 2009 and lived there all the way up until this past summer, 2022. I did a, a bunch of different things, like from the time that I started living there to when I left. But a, a big chunk of that, maybe from around 2013 to 2017, I was a like a touring musician. I played keyboard and sang in a, a pop band. I, it was with my ex-husband and some of our friends. And I, it, yeah, I don't know. It was like a really fun time and just like a really cool way to kind of, I don't know, get this glimpse of or be part of the music industry. And I like we went on uh, like several headlining tours and and played in all these cool places around the world. And then at the same time, I was like, oh, well, you know, I, I write my own music. Like, I'm interested in pursuing this. And so so I, like, I wrote and recorded music of my own, too, and put that out there under the the moniker Pink Feathers. So I, so, so I kind of had my own little, like, music creative projects going on too. And then in 2017, I also got a little more involved in the running community in Portland. So I I got initially involved or, you know, became kind of part of the Portland running community. I mean, as soon as I moved there, I started working at Portland Running Company and had a lot of fun with that and made a lot of friends through doing that. And then, yeah, in in 2017, uh, some of my close friends and I started this track club called Rose City Track Club. And and yeah, it just kind of like built this little community and it grew and it's still around today. And I, and then I also started coaching track and field and cross country at a local high school, Mountainside High School out in Beaverton. So like most of my, like kind of like uh, from like, yeah, 2017 to basically like up to the pandemic, like that's kind of what I was involved in. We weren't doing as much touring. So I was kind of, I mean, the touring stopped in 2017. And I, as far as my personal music, like I loved being part of a group and like playing support, but 
I think it's another thing to kind of carry your own act. And I just, I just don't think it fit my personality. Like I'm a little more introverted. Like I, so I just kind of set that aside and, and yeah, and started to kind of turn my focus more toward running and the track club. And I had this big goal of uh, qualifying for the Olympic trials. So that's kind of what I, there was this kind of big build to that. And I ran the Houston marathon in 2020. And uh, so at Houston, I ended up running a two hour 51 and change minute marathon. And, and that was a, like, at the time, a six minute PR. So like, even though I didn't get the trials goal, I mean, I ran the best marathon of my life. I was also at that point, like thinking about, or like planning to hike the AT and, and I just kind of had it in my mind, like, okay, I'll give it everything I have to qualify for the U S Olympic marathon trials. It's something I had been honestly chasing for like 12 years, <laughs> like three Olympic cycles, even though, you know, I, I never really had any kind of indication in my, you know, race times or, or fitness that that was a viable thing, but I just, I really thought I could do it and I, I don't know. So I just kind of fixated on this goal for like basically all of my adult life <laughs> to that point. Uh, and it kind of felt like I was banging my head against a wall a little bit, like really wanting this thing so badly. And it, it was like a goal that wasn't really serving me anymore. So I... And it's kind of funny because like I had this whole timeline already planned out from like 2015 or 2016. I was like, okay, in 2020, I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail and, you know, not, not really knowing how I'd be feeling about my Olympic trials goal at that point and not really knowing what else would be going on in my life or not thinking why it might be like significant or like, I don't know. It was just this idea I had, but I was very committed to the idea, like for a very long time before I even started. I think there was something, I don't know what it is, but like something very deep inside that like called me to the trail to begin with. And I, you know, I think that goes back to like from a young age and I, like, I, I don't know what it is, but yeah, I don't know. I think there's something that like drew me toward wanting to do that, like to have that kind of experience. And it would probably still be true of like why I go in any hike now. Uh, I, I think it's mainly just curiosity, like what's going to happen? What will I learn? What what will I see out there? What what's I and and I'm like interested in exploring my own capacity and my own limits or yeah like and I guess that just goes back to curiosity but like how far can I hike in a day what can I do and then I think maybe just like me being the the way I am these very enticing goal and, and like when I say me being the way I'm like very type a goal oriented kind of person originally yeah my plan was I think it was just I'm gonna hike the AT. I didn't, I really didn't have a plan of how I would do it. I mean, it was a very just kind of like daunting foreign thing to think about. Cause I really, aside from those, like this, maybe three expeditions I went on, on like three consecutive summers as like, a, I guess I was like a young teenager. Um, I, yeah, I didn't really have much outdoor experience. Otherwise I never did any anything like that as an adult. And I just thought, I, yeah, I was just like, this is this cool adventurous thing I am going to do. I'll work out the details later. <laughs> like, So yeah, back then it was just, I, I want to do this. And I, I shared my plans with, with some friends and and, you know, they're like, oh, that's so cool. Like, I can I, I can I come with you? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Like, let's plan a trip together. And, you know, it's still like four or five years away. But, you know, it's like so it's just kind of just more of an abstract 
idea. I, I really didn't have a plan. It just sounded fun. And, and then the closer it got, or I guess I should also say I, like I, back then I, I was aware of trail records and I had read about Jennifer Farr Davis and her supported overall record. I had read about uh, Heather Anderson and her self-supported Pacific Crest Trail and Appalachian Trail. And I, but those, yeah, I, I didn't necessarily see myself doing those things, but I, you know, going back to the, like the running and Olympic trials, I was like, well, like I'm a runner. I wonder if anyone's ever like run the Appalachian Trail. I wonder if <laughs> like, maybe that's something I could try doing. And I, I wasn't thinking of it back then in terms of trying for a record, but I was just like, oh, maybe I can, you know, meld these two things together. Maybe I can bring my running into this hike somehow. So I just started kind of toying around with that idea. And then I, yeah, I, I didn't really start actually planning anything until uh, 2019, the summer before. And I was like, oh, I guess, okay, I have one summer before next summer. So I guess I should actually start to experiment with gear and how this is going to work. And if I'm going to run, how am I going to carry my stuff and also run? Like, how's that going to work? Like so many people before her, Liz's questions about how to approach the Appalachian Trail led her directly to Warren Doyle, the man who would become Jupiter to Liz's Mercury. I I met Warren because I attended his Appalachian Trail Institute. It's like a five-day workshop that he hosts at his uh, homestead. <laughs> um, like, yeah, he has this neat farm property in Tennessee. And it, it's like a retreat center. And, oh, he call, it's the folk school. He calls it the App- Appalachian Folk School. And, and he is a, he's an educator. He's a retired professor, like school, like university professor. And also he's hiked the Appalachian Trail 18 times. I know <laughs> nine of them were through hikes. So hiking end to end in one go. And nine of them were section hikes. So he'd do different sections of the hike and log them and eventually piece it all together to be an entire hike. So he's done that nine times as well. And he's also, he, he's mentored other AT record attempters and record setters. Like I know he helped, he helps out the overall record holder, Carl Sabe with like some logistical stuff. He mentored Jennifer Farr Davis and you, you can sign up for these five day workshops. They're about like the psychological preparation for the AT, because if you read up on the statistics, I think something like 20% of the people that start the AT with the intention of hiking the entire thing finish. So there's a 20% completion rate. So we had to fill out this questionnaire before the workshop. And I I was definitely, I, you know, I, I had been kind of at, at that point, the idea of trying for a record was floating around in my head, but I also didn't want to be you know, obnoxious about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think there was a little section that was, oh, it just asked, like, how long do you think it'll take you to complete the trail? Or how long do you want to complete the trail in? And I was like, well, I know I... Uh, you know, I had been looking at the fastest known time boards and I think at it, it, basically there were three women on the board. It's Jennifer Farr Davis and then Heather Anderson, who did it self-supported. Oh, and Jennifer's time, she did it in a little over 46 days. Heather Anderson did it self-supported. So like backpacking style, no support crew. Uh, she did it in 54 days. And then there's another, yeah, I know. <laughs> it's like not that, not that much of a difference yeah. from the, like the, the overall record. It's really amazing. And then Liz 
trail named Snorkel Thomas. She had done the hike self-supported, but she she did it in 80 days. So I was like, okay, like, maybe, I don't know, maybe I can try to do it in 80 days. I don't, like, I didn't, I wasn't even at that point trying to think of uh, touching Jennifer Parr Davis's or Heather Anderson's records, but I was like, well, maybe, I don't know, maybe I can do it in 80 days. So I think on the little questionnaire, I put a hundred days. I was like, well, I'll just round up. So I like, so it's like more modest of a goal or <laughs> I don't know, but he, he told me later, I, he saw the, what I had written. And then he also, I think just looked me up on Facebook or something and saw that I was a runner and he just kind of put two and two together pretty quickly. Like, oh yeah, I bet she's going to try to hike the trail pretty fast. And then I had also emailed him before the workshop, knowing that we'd be going on these hikes every day, but they were planned, I think to be like six or eight miles. And I was like, Hey, are, would there be options for like going longer? If we want to go longer, I'm going to be running. I want to experiment with running with my pack. Cause like at that point I was planning self-supported. And so I think maybe there were, I did like a couple 13 mile days in a row. And the first two times I took my full pack with me and all the weight and tried, it just was experimenting with running on the AT and it was really fun. And every day Warren said, Hey, you can just leave your pack in the trunk. You don't need to take your pack. And I was like, well, no, I want to like practice with my pack. Like that's, <laughs> that's like why I'm here. <laughs> and then the last day, I think there were, there were three days of hiking on the last day he offered one more time and I said, okay. And so I left my pack in the car and then just ended up having one of those like runners high kind of runs. It was like a, a mercury kind of run where you hear like the, the sprightly music playing in the background. But it, it was just like one of those kind of like a spiritual high moment. Like I was just running through the woods and I think it even like a little rainstorm came through, but I just felt like happy and free. And I remember writing in my little journal, like I felt like a kid in a playground, like I just felt amazing. And I don't know. So I just had like all these good feels from that run. And I remembered also telling Warren how excited I felt. And so I, yeah, I don't know. I think it was just like, he maybe just saw some of that, like, passion and excitement come through for me. And, uh, and he also just loves AT records. Like he follows whenever they happen, like he, he always follows along and he's always very like, you know, willing to help anyone that'll ask. And it's, I think it's just something that he is also very like passionate about. So, you know, here's this person that's like a runner and excited about doing the trail and maybe hiking it really fast. So, it, so anyway, he, we kept in touch after that. And he said like, Hey, like if you end up wanting to try for a supported record, like I, like I would support you, like if you want. Yeah. So that, that's kind of how that all came about. And so in addition to the, like the workshops that he puts on, he also does these kind of like supported section hikes for so similar to what we were doing at the workshop, but on various parts of the AC. So he said, Hey, I have this, he calls them smart hikes. I have a smart hike happening in New York. Like, why don't you come to New York? And then you can try some like long, long days on the AT. It was a short trip. So it was two and a half days. I flew, I took a red eye and he picked me up at the airport. I think we stopped by a Walmart so I could just, you know, get whatever supplies, uh, food or whatever. And then he dropped me off on at, you know, some part of the trail around noon. And I just ran until maybe seven o'clock or so, ran and hiked until seven o'clock or whenever before it got dark out and did about 20 miles. And then the day after that, I did 40 miles. And that was my first time doing anything that far ever. And, <laughs> and again, it was kind of the same 
yeah, not to be corny, but like magical feeling kind of like, again, like that high of like just skipping around in the woods all day. Like that, that's what it felt like. It never felt like hard work. It just felt really fun. And, and it was just this kind of cool discovery, like, oh my gosh, like I had no idea I could do this and feel really good doing it. And so it was neat to have this theoretical thing that I was interested in doing, but then actually trying it and being like, oh my gosh, I can do this. So, and then the next day after that, I did another 40 miles and it just, it was, again, it was the same thing. It was just kind of this very positive experience. And I just loved, I like, I loved the yeah, I don't like the freedom of movement, the freedom of being out there and then just seeing all these beautiful sights. And, but yeah, I don't know. It was just this kind of feeling of, I, I found my thing. Liz was in. She put in some final big training efforts and set her sights on starting her hike on July 7th, embarking on a plan she and Warren set up, and it had some very ambitious goals. The goal was to break the overall supported record by Carl Sabe, awesome Belgian runner athlete guy. <laughs> uh, and we had like a very meticulous plan <laughs> for like how I would do that. And, you know, as as anyone that has done multi-day adventures or even ultras or even, you know, marathons, whatever. It's like, you know, you can have a really perfect plan, but there's that quote, like everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, the, that was the A goal. And we kind of had this, like all my start stop points mapped out. And I, you know, I, I started with a big first day and a big second day, all kind of with the goal of getting to the southern end of the Smokies at a very specific time because there are these long 30-mile stretches without support in the Smokies. So it, it was all just kind of like strategic. And and I also still had pretty limited camping and hiking experience. <laughs> so every everything was planned to end at a road crossing. Like I did bring some of my hiking and camping gear with me as an option, but I was never, I ended up never being brave enough to use it. And and also it just would have been like one more thing to do on top of already being exhausted. So So Liz was focused on Carl Sabe's record, which stood at 41 days, seven hours. That is an average of 53 miles a day. She also had a plan B, which was Jennifer Farr Davis's supported women's record of 46 days, 11 hours. This would still require that Liz complete, on average, 47 miles every single day. It would become clear early on that Liz wouldn't be able to break Sabe's record, so the benchmark that Farr Davis had set became the goal to aim for. Most days started very early in the morning. My kind of go-to time like on a standard day would be 4 a.m. as in like on the trail by 4 a.m. so probably waking up at 3 15 or so and I, I I slept in the support vehicle I had like a little platform like a raised platform in the back that I slept on and I and Jupiter slept he slept under a tarp outside every night <laughs> just very kind of him and yeah, I, I'd try to be on the trail by 4 a.m. And of course, that varied greatly throughout, just depending on the goals for the day or the weather or the terrain. So from very early on, like right away, I I wasn't getting much sleep, even in the, the first few days. And I, I don't know if I ever got used to it, but there were, it's not like I felt sleepy the entire day all the time it would usually be the hardest kind of in the first half of the day but then I it it would just kind of come and go in in phases or sometimes I'd have a lot of energy other times I'd you know be slapping my 
my face like on the trail, like trying to stay awake. So. The, the first week or so I was very alone uh, when I was out there on the trail. A, it was a pandemic year and B, like I just, it, like because of that, not only were there not many people on the trail, but I also couldn't just like invite my friends to come fly out from Oregon and hike with me. Like I, I had driven cross country to get there. So it was very solitary for the beginning of the trip and the end as I got up in some Maine, but, but through the middle sections, I actually had a lot of people that had heard about what I was doing. So I, I'd have like people uh, come out and walk with me for uh, stretches, like especially down in Virginia and kind of like all the way up through Connecticut. I, you know, during the day might have some people join me and then even some kind people join me for <laughs> night sections, which I really appreciated. But, but yeah, I rarely took a much of a break. I mean, I, I might stop to grab a, you know, a sandwich that Warren had brought for me. I might need to change my shoes. You know, he'd meet me at road crossings throughout the day. Sometimes I'd, you know, I'd only go a few miles without having support. Sometimes I'd go up to 30 miles without support, just depending on where we are on the trail. But it's like, it's just kind of go, go, go all day. And I would, because I wasn't able to, I, I didn't, you know, for being a runner going into this, I'm going to run, I'm going to run. You know, I didn't run pretty much the entire time. I wasn't able to because of like injuries that cropped up. I mean, I walked most of it, which ended up because I wanted to, you know, I still had these goals that I didn't want to let go of. So I just walked uh, I, I'd usually cut myself off at midnight, just mentally. I couldn't, I didn't want to go past midnight. So yeah, four to 12 was kind of like my st standard. <laughs> but there, yeah, there, there was kind of like a, a crossroads a figurative crossroads in Virginia and in, in Shenandoah National Park where I forget exactly my ailments. I know shin splints had been kind of bothering me throughout. I think that was the worst thing at the time. I also had really bad blisters that were the, like the first thing in the morning, it would take a few miles for my blisters to warm up. So I'd just be like, whimpering and whining you know like by myself down the trail like just hoping my blisters would eventually warm up and then I'd end the day crying because my shins hurt so bad and so it was starting to feel like a losing battle and I I had stayed on pace I guess with Jen's record I, I think through what whatever day, like day 18 or 19, I had averaged, I think, 49 miles a day, and, you know, with these ailments and such. And, you know, I'm she she dealt with all kinds of stuff, too. So it wasn't just me. And but I think I just I kept hoping it would get better or something would turn around or like I'd magically just I'd eventually heal and be able to run again, but it was becoming very clear that that wasn't going to happen and that I ended. I, yeah, I finally just kind of, I don't want to say gave up, but I kind of like, yeah, it, I, I had kind of reached my limit. I'd had enough and I think I just, it, it was toward the end of a day, maybe six or seven o'clock. So I could have kept hiking on a quote unquote normal day that, you know, I still had probably another at like six hours of hiking to do, but I just kind of looked at Jupiter and was like, I don't, yeah, like, I don't think I, for, I, for, I don't know if I said, I don't think I can 
do it. I forget what I said, but I, I did know that I was done for the day. I, and I did know that the record was no longer, uh, like the, yeah, the record wasn't happening. And that was like my whole thing. Like, (laughs) so I ended the day early and essentially because of that, let go of Jen's record. Cause yeah, to give myself any chance, I, you know, I should have kept walking and I took a quote unquote rest day the next day. I think I started that day by hiking 12 miles just to do something or like just to, I think like it was like, let's just, maybe it was, let's just finish Shenandoah National Park. And I got some like Burger King (laughs) and just kind of was like, what am I going to do next? And then, yeah, Jupiter came up with, he came up with several alternative plans for me. And it was basically like, here's when you would finish if you keep going at 30 miles a day. Here's when you would finish if you keep doing 20 miles a day. And just kind of like, and I think the whole idea was like, yeah, he wouldn't be able to keep supporting me or maybe he would up until the planned 47 days or whatever we gave ourselves as like a maximum. (laughs) But like, but then after that, it's like, I had my backpacking stuff, I'm on my own. And I was... I just, I was like, I don't want to finish in September. (laughs) Like I, and I also didn't want to stop. Like I still wanted to keep going. So it's like, well, like, why do I want to keep going? And so I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, I think it just, there was definitely something deeper there. I don't know if I can totally name what it was, but I don't know. I think it was not like a magical, blissful experience in its entirety. But I certainly found this like inner toughness that I, I didn't know I had. So we came up with a new plan to try for under 50 days because like that would still be just like a really big personal big deal. Like and and it helped motivate me, I guess, to want to keep going. And, and also, yeah, I don't know. I just, the thought of stopping just seemed really sad. And the thought of not reaching Katahdin, which is the, where the Northern terminus of the trail is like, that also just seemed like, you know, I had envisioned myself for so long, like touching that sign, reaching the mountaintop and just to like, let it all go because I wasn't going to get a record. Like that seems sad. So (laughs) yeah. So that, that was when I decided and we decided to keep going and it didn't get easier after that either. (laughs) Liz recommitted to completing the AT and this meant she would continue to face the physical challenges of long hiking days over difficult terrain, battling injuries. And there was the reality of facing the ever-present dangers and uncertainties of wild places. Fear is probably my favorite topic (laughs) or, like, thing to think about because it informs so much of what we do, like, in our lives on a daily basis, how we plan, how we... So, I like, I have fears going into every hike. And it's it's kind of like the usual suspects, like, storms bears, people. uh, Yeah. And, but I think at least for me, I tend to stew in my fears and it, it can be paralyzing like before you even get out there. And I'm just saying out there as a metaphor for anything, like it can, it can stop you from doing anything before you start because of like, what could happen. And yeah, I mean, I think that's just like a very human thing. So I was really nervous about storms, like even from when I first started reading about the AT and learning about it, it's like, well, you're up on ridges basically the whole time. So what do you do? And even during 
some of my practice hikes, like there was a storm and I ended up just hiding in the support vehicle because I didn't want to go out in the storm. And I remember, yeah, Jupiter was like, if you, yeah, if you want to go for a record, you can't just like hide in the support vehicle because there's storms every day, <laughs> like for, at least in the South in the summer, for, like for sure. And yeah, the, I think, yeah, the first storm I encountered on the AT, yeah, I think it was just a day or, or like two days in, and I remember hiking, yeah, like up, going up a mountain while there's a storm rolling through. And I had never planned on carrying a hike, bringing a hiking pole. Like I never used those trail running, but I had, you know, only two days in started to get shin splints. So Jupiter gave me a hiking pole. And I remember thinking, great, like now I'm going to get electrocuted because I'm holding this hiking pole. So every time like the thunder cracked, I'd like throw my hiking pole down the trail as if like, you know, I was faster than lightning. <laughs> but, and I, I mean, the storms became a very regular occurrence and they, I mean, I don't think there's ever a storm that's not going to be scary and there's never going to be a a good time to like be on a mountain like you're, I mean, it's, it is risky, but I had so many other things on my mind and they became so regular that I just, uh, just didn't care anymore. And I, I definitely like, you know, would yell at the thunder or like, I'm like, Oh yeah, is that all you got? Or like, you don't scare me. I like, And, and there were definitely times that I'd, I'd sing, just to, you know, I'd be scared, but I'd sing just to make myself feel better. Like the I have confidence song from Sound of Music. And I'm like, I have confidence. And, and you know, I'm like crying, but like saying I have confidence. <laughs> and it wasn't just being in the storm that could cause Liz to go into states of singing and crying at the same time. The aftermath of storms brought their own type of hurdles. I, I hiked through a tropical storm in New Jersey. That was, <laughs> I actually was just laughing because it was so ridiculous. I had just crossed into New Jersey from Pennsylvania. And, you know, I think, you know, I wasn't paying attention to, you know, I wasn't really on my phone a lot. Like I wasn't paying attention to the weather. Like Jupiter knew it was coming, but I think he didn't want to worry me with like what was ahead. And I think he just maybe mentioned it like the day before or the day of like, yeah, just so you know, there's a tropical storm coming. And I, I got really lucky because it rained really, really, really hard on me. Like I was hiking and the trail was just a river. It was like probably three to four inches of water. I was wearing every layer I had plus like Jupiter had lent me his big old jacket. I was trying, I was trying to think of them. It was like made of a very thick, like not water resistant material, but it, I just, it was more about keeping warm than staying dry. I was also wearing a garbage bag underneath everything just to like keep my core warm. And it was just, I mean, I was smiling the whole time because it was just so funny. <laughs> like, it was, you know, of course, no one's out there. And so I, I guess it was one of those like, okay, I'm feeling very alive kind of moments. <laughs> and I, but I, again, like I just got lucky. I heard one tree fall and it wasn't near where I was. But I, I keep saying I was lucky because then another obstacle that came up, the several days after that was so many downed trees, like an unbelievable amount of downed trees. And it was all really fresh. And, uh, and you know, the, it had just happened. So the, you know, trail maintainers hadn't gotten a chance to come out there. And I like, I still have kind of like PTSD from it. Cause like I was often looking down to make sure I wasn't tripping cause the AC has a lot of rocks and roots and I would smell a downed tree before I could see it because there was this specific smell of like the fresh bark. And, wow. I, and I would just feel this sense of dread because I'm like, oh, and then, and then I would start to see the fresh green leaves on the ground as I would start to approach. It's like, okay, I smell it. I see the leaves. Oh, here's another downed tree. And 
during the day it was just a nuisance, but then at night it it actually got really scary because you couldn't always see where the trail went because there were so many downed trees. I had my you know flashlight and headlamp, but I you know stayed very calm while everything was happening. But I looked down later and my hands were shaking. You know, the the AT goes on all these like steep up and down mountains. So I'm hiking down kind of like a steep embankment down into a valley or a gap, as they say. And there's the trails just obliterated. So like, so yeah, that that was a big obstacle and pretty scary sometimes because I'm, you know, I'm just by myself and I don't know where to go. And then there was one time that I, you know, I did have someone that had a company like that had come with me and, and hiked with me at night. And then we were together and we still got lost and like got off. So it was just, yeah, that was a challenge. And then, of course, there's the wildlife. I had my first bear encounter in the Smokies. It was just munching in the middle of the trail, munching on some berries. It heard me before I saw it and it snorted at me a couple times just to be like, hey, this is my space. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And I tried yelling at it to get it to go away, but it did not care. So I ended up having to like kind of bushwhack around it. And then, yeah, I had another bear encounter later that I startled some bear cubs and made the mama bear really mad. And she actually like bluff charged me a few times on the trail. It was really scary and, I've, um, and, and it ended up being fine. And again, I, you know, the mama bear stood her ground, the cubs were up in the trees. So I was like, okay, I guess I'm bushwhacking again. And yeah, so there, there was that. And then I saw many other bears on the trail, but not, you know, just it was they were usually running away. But it was always just kind of an awareness to have that they're out there. You know, it's like, yes, there there was a lot of pain and suffering, but there were still like all these magical moments like sprinkled throughout. Like there yeah. were, I mean, every day. And I I don't know, like just I have these memories of I I had one one night or day my parents had come to visit and I I could have finished a very like good on paper day at eight o'clock and I could have gone back to like the hotel with them and gotten a shower and uh, but like I, but I also was just like oh I uh, I know I can keep going and not because like I want to torture myself but just I it I just I just knew I could uh, I I kept going and there uh, there actually was a storm coming again but before that like I just remember that like the sun was setting and then because of these dark clouds, it made for this really brilliant, like these orange rays of sun, just kind of like peeking through the trees and then lighting up all these really pretty white flowers that were kind of like carpeted on the forest floor. And I don't, I, yeah, I mean, it was really beautiful, but it, it was just one of those, like a neat moment I wouldn't have experienced otherwise. And this other moment on the 50th day, I was like, I, I had, I was really determined to like get to a certain spot that day. Cause then that meant I would be able to finish under 52 days or something, but it meant putting in a really long day. So I, I think I got up and started at 2 a.m. that day and, and it was like a 2 a.m. to midnight kind of day <laughs> and and it kind of culminated with hiking up this one last mountain white cap mountain and it was I don't yeah I don't know what the feeling was like I don't like self-empowerment pride like that those don't really sum it up I don't think quite <laughs> but but just reaching the top of this mountain and you know the wind it's at night there's like fog and wind just kind of swirling around I'm by myself I have my trusty little hiking pole that I've had with like most of this journey my flashlight and 
it was just a really surreal moment. So I don't know. I, I think it's like maybe what I'm trying to tap into is that like you're just like pushing yourself to these extremes, but then you have these really extreme experiences that just wouldn't be the same without the struggle to get there. Not long after that big day, Liz Durstein arrived at her final destination of Katahdin. She completed the Appalachian Trail in 51 days, 16 hours, and 30 minutes. She averaged 42 miles a day. With this, Durstein became the second fastest woman to hike the entire AT, and hers is one of the top 10 fastest AT hikes, man or woman, supported or unsupported, northbound or southbound, ever recorded. Her hike also set a new FKT Appalachian Trail record for women supported in the northbound direction. Far Davis had gone southbound. The previous northbound supported women's AT record of 106 days, 8 hours, had been set back in 2015 by the mother-daughter team of Angela and Kelsey Sawyer. Beyond all that, however, for Liz, although this hiking adventure had come to an end, the impact of her AT journey has continued to reverberate through her life to this very day. Well, now I'm here in Boston doing music. I mean, the AT definitely had played a big role in that. Like I was doing this really extreme physical thing and... And I also, I, because I didn't listen to my support crew, didn't put my phone in a little bag and then it got wet in the storms and stopped working. And so I didn't have any form of like entertainment or the ability to call someone or the ability to put on music. So it really was just like <laughs> in my head and, and like kind of one cool thing to come out of that was music, like little melodies would form in my head and just kind of like go over and over and over. But it just kind of brought out this little, it like tapped into this creative part of me that I didn't know was still there. And, and then I think <laughs> also in doing this very extreme a physical thing. I was, I think I was just like, when I'm done with this, I am just, I am going to do creative pursuits. I am going to write, I am going to make music. I'm never going to walk again. <laughs> like, so I, I don't know some, something about, it was probably, I mean, there's the combination of like the fatigue and the high emotions. And then also just being a like artist, creative person, but it, I don't know. It just kind of lit the fire in me to want to pursue those, like, just to more creative or, yeah, like, pursuits again after kind of leaving it for some time. Because, I like, after the I stopped touring, I wasn't really doing a ton with music, like, between the end of that and the start of the AT. So... So today I'm currently living in Boston. I'm in the midst of a two-year music program at Wangji School of Music. I'm studying piano, uh, classical piano. So that I grew up studying classical piano. I studied it in school, but then kind of, you know, I took a hiatus to like play pop music for a long time. And none of this was planned. <laughs> and and uh, uh, yeah, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not, I not to go into details, but it is significant. Like I, I was married for 13 years and now I'm not. I, and I lived in Portland, Oregon for 13 years and now I'm not, not to say that I might not go back, but I, you know, this it's, I think not only did I hike the, the AT and have this kind of wild experience, but like also the, it was the pandemic year and the right. pandemic happened. So like, I, I think there's a lot intertwined there too. I mean, everyone's lives were upended. Yeah. 
So, so I, you know, I'm sure that plays into a lot of it too. And, and, and it does kind of make you, you know, like, okay, like, what are my priorities? Like, what, what do I want in my life? What do I not want in my life? And I, you know, it, like, I, I want, I want everyone to like me. I want everyone in my life to like me, but like, (laughs) but then, but then it's like, Ooh, I start kind of going down this different path. And again, not that it's the AT itself, but like, I'm, I'm starting to maybe do things that not everyone is going to like. And, but I feel strongly enough about it to, to want to go and pursue that. And, and so it means I'm not going to be doing all the same things or necessarily like prioritizing all the same things I was before. And like, I'm, I'm not making everyone happy with my decisions. <laughs> like, and that's, that's really hard to do. So, but yeah, I mean, I think maybe what I found not, not just on the trail, but in the process of the kind of like preparing for it and exploring all these new things. I think there were parts of my life where I, I was more trying to like fit in or blend in or just kind of that like look the part or be the part. And on the trail, and not to put it all on the trail, maybe the trail is like a metaphor, but like I just, I felt maybe that was like the the vehicle for, uh, like I, I found a place where I felt like I could really be myself and whatever that means. And that brings us to the end of Liz Durstein's Appalachian Trail story. Albeit, of course, her story of adventuring did not end at the AT. Liz has gone on to complete several other multi-day hikes, and she has set several FKTs. This includes the self-supported record on the Long Trail in Vermont, which took just over six days, And most recently, this summer of 2023, she set the FKT self-supported women's record for the Via Alpina in Switzerland. It took her just under seven days. Of course, I will link in the show notes to the many ways you can keep up with Liz Durstein. Specifically, I will link to how you can learn more about her AT adventure. And in the show notes, you will also find ways to keep up with women's running stories as well as hear her sports. I want to thank Liz Durstein so much for sharing this really powerful and personal story and also for sharing her music. More on that in just a second. Durstein's commitment to following her adventurous curiosity and pushing her limits demonstrates just what an impact these types of experiences can have on every aspect of your life. And now about the music that Liz allowed us to use. The piano music you heard was from a suite that was inspired by her trip on the AT. She recorded it in a voice memo with an electronic keyboard not long after she finished her Appalachian Trail adventure. And I am so thankful that we got to use it in this episode. Thank you, Liz. Additional music in this episode, a clip from Mercury by Gustav Holst, produced by Beta Records. And of course, we feature original music by Cormac O'Regan in every single episode. And that brings us to the end of this episode. I want to thank you so much for being here and for listening. I say it every single time because it's true. I love making these episodes, but the power in them is you listening. So, yeah, thank you. And... Until next time, this is Cherie coming to you from my closet, now in Cork, Ireland, and I wish you healthy, joyful strides forward. Women's running, running, running.
running stories. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 